the core hard reality is that there is no South African economy because it's just not sustainable if we think of it. Uh, you know, the, the economic term is autarky, and, and that's been used a whole lot lately. You know, in, in mainstream media. How do we solve South Africa's problems of poverty and record high unemployment? Well, somebody who has been writing about these issues for over 20 years is Sean Hagedorn. He is an independent analyst and strategy consultant based in Cape Town. Sean Hagedorn, welcome to Solutions with David Ansar. Thanks, David. So, Sean, let's first start off by framing the problem. We have very high levels of unemployment in South Africa, and particularly youth unemployment. If you're a young person, you are more likely to be unemployed than in a job. And as a consequence, we have very high levels of poverty in South Africa. What is your assessment of how we got into this position as a country? Right. Well, thanks, David. And I, I think it's uh, probably the, the most important economic question is what to do about youth unemployment. I have a great deal to say about it. But just to, to, to summarize in a nutshell, uh, you know, the the temptation, certainly by, by the ANC and, and by others uh, to play along with that line, is that it's mostly about attracting investments. But that's not the, the primary choke point. The primary choke point is uh, people aren't getting jobs because there's not access to customers. And, and that's what has to change. I mean, obviously, attracting investment is a critical part of that, that mix. Um, but do we in South Africa have a sufficiently large enough customer base to fuel demand for manufactured goods and other services. Right. So that's exactly uh, what the problem is, is that uh, discretionary spending in South Africa has been, you know, more or less stagnating, uh, certainly on a per capita basis for over 10 years. And, you know, I've been saying that for over, over five, that that's the, the track we're on. And it, basically what's happening is that employment is in balance, in equilibrium, uh, with spending. And, and the, to increase the capacity to spend, you have to grow the economy. And that really takes a, a long time uh, to, to do that in, in an effective, sustainable, uh, high growth path to, to where you would uh, catch up uh, employment wise. Uh, and, and so you know, the vast majority of successful emerging economies uh, figured out quite a while ago that uh, the, the fast track is to focus on value-added exporting and our policies all but prohibit that. And uh, the focus is not on increasing value-adding exporting, and it has to be. All right, so South Africa is a small open economy and we have uh, some exports of manufactured goods uh, and we are beneficiary of uh, trade arrangements like AGOA, which gives us preferential access to the USA. We have trade relationships with the EU and other major markets, but we haven't really seen the volume of exports that other emerging countries uh, have been able to take advantage of, I'm thinking particularly in Southeast Asia and East Asia. Uh, why are exports in South Africa so low? And what is that relationship between exports and economic growth? Right. Okay. So... To, to throw some numbers at it, we don't want to get bogged down in the numbers, but South Africa's economy is almost uh, 500, put in dollars, almost $500 billion a year. Uh, so let's just round it up to that and say that domestic consumption would be over 300 or 350 uh, billion of the, of the 500 billion. And you can increase uh, commodity exports 
quite quickly if the price and demand goes up and, and transets is functioning and things like that. But what we really think about is, is that creating jobs? Is that really sustainable? Uh, you know, you have uh, super cycles in commodities. And so to think that we are, are going to uh, resolve our uh, horrendous uh, youth unemployment problem through increasing uh, commodity exports, that's not at all uh, rational. Uh, so to, to do that, you have to create increased value-added exports. And you know, the pathways are, are there, as you say, David, you know, to, to export into the, the US or Europe. Uh, but our policies are, are very, very much focused on, on redistribution. They're, they're not focused at all. And in fact, they couldn't be uh, more hostile. I mean, the, the local uh, most recent uh, wrinkle has been localization which is going exactly the, the opposite direction. And it's completely unworkable. It's completely out of kilter with how the, the, the rest of, of the world, at least the, the, the high growth countries, which add value, how they function. And, and if you really to, to break it down at a fundamental level, what's happening is the economy isn't, isn't focused on, on creating wealth. It, it's not close to doing that, uh, which is pretty extraordinary. If we weren't able to pull stuff out of the ground, we'd clearly be going backwards, uh, unlike uh, so many other high growth uh, economies. And, and then you know, the other thing, if, if you look at, at our economy, uh, you know, just so much of, of the focus is on, on redistribution that you don't even get that halfway point of creating a wealth where you would increase income by increasing productivity. But then all of that, all of that uh, you have to keep in mind. And then look at, do we have uh, market access? So you reference like uh, ago and things like that. So there is market access from the other side but we're just not focused on, on doing that as you know, best uh, summarized by the, the shift to localization, which is a uh, doubling down and going in the wrong direction. And what in your view is the problem with localization? Because the way the Department of Trade and Industry and Competition frames it is that we need to protect local industry uh, from uh, cheap imports from abroad. Uh, I'm very skeptical of that argument. What is your thesis on why localization doesn't work? Right. Well, you know, a lot of people get put off by, by economics and, and things like that. But, you know, we, we could use the, the simple example of, you know, teach someone to fish uh, and you feed them for a day, uh, teach, uh, you know, give someone a fish and you feed them for a day, teach someone to fish and you feed them for a lifetime. Well, basically what happens in South Africa, it's like, you know, we're all fishing in, in a small lake and there's not enough fish. And then government and you know big business, other other voices say, well, let's let's get invest in more fishing boats. But it's still focused on on that small lake uh, versus ocean going uh, fishing. And you know if you just run the numbers, you know switch from the folks on, on the fish and, and and just you know out of spreadsheets, there's just there isn't the purchasing power to employ the the young people. And if I could just switch to uh, what I think is a, a very helpful way of looking at things, is there's probably no better indicator of predicting which economies are really going to perform in, in the next uh, few decades than the, the portion of their young people, let's say in their 20s, which are adding value to within global supply chains. Those people, those economies are really positioned to perform and, and we're the opposite. And, and localization just takes us further and further away from that. So we, we are you know, rapidly moving in the wrong direction, which is tragic and it has to stop. And many of those East Asian economies started off quite low down on the value chain. They were doing very uh, kind of simple inputs uh, into what were ultimately quite complex finished goods, uh, but have been able to move up that value chain. I'm thinking of a country like Taiwan, for example. 
Um, so if South Africa wants to have a much more diversified, more sophisticated economy, we need to lock into some of those, those global value chains. How do we raise our position? Uh, how do we improve the quality of those inputs? Right. And, and Taiwan is an amazing example. So, you know, to think that we can quickly replicate uh, Taiwan uh, is unrealistic, but ultimately I think we can. And then here's where it, it's a little bit challenging, like, you know, at, at a uh, individual level, uh, you know, you have to have a conversation with yourself. Well, really, I, I'm a consultant. I mean, I sometimes have creative ideas or whatever, but I know full well that I shouldn't be going to DTI, not that they want to listen to me anyhow, but DTI shouldn't be listening to consultants saying, look, this is the pathway. Obviously, you need some of that, and there's been some of that in the past, but really what you want to do is you want to unlock, South Africa has plenty of creative entrepreneurial verve, but it's inward focused. So, I mean, I've written about this in the past as well. You know, if we were talking about a family uh, instead of a, a country, a nation, it would be like child abuse. You know, there, there is no way that the vast majority of South Africa's entrepreneurs, if they're inward focused, that, that they can succeed. So they can, they can gather more fish than the guys on the other boats, but then the other, the other guys are, are going to suffer. We're just not going to proceed. So, you know, there has to be that leap of faith, but so many other countries have done it and the world keeps changing, which presents opportunities. And Asian, by the way, you know, Asian, uh, you know, their, their labor costs keep going up. I mean, Taiwan's labor costs are, are extremely high. And, and, you know, and, and so they're moving up sort of the, the value change. I mean, they're the, by far the best in the world at silicon chips and, and no one can touch them. I mean, it's pretty bizarre. And then you know, that came from nowhere. And so, and, and no one really saw that coming when, when they started making the, those moves in the, in the early eighties. Um, and, and so we don't really need to predict, but we know we need to have a, enough faith uh, in Sarah 20 year olds. And, and the other thing to keep in mind, if, if you switch from a South African perspective to a global perspective, there's not enough young people in the world. There's not an overabundance of, of young people. Uh, so really the, the stage is set, but then we have to have the, the courage to, to go out and, and, and compete uh, you know, on, on the global stage. And, and, and the efficient way to do that is not like you know, Discovery and Investec and Nando's. They're great companies, very impressive what they've done, but that, they don't create jobs you know, to any meaningful extent back in South Africa when they succeed overseas. It's much, much more effective if you just have a whole lot of smaller companies, probably for the most part, integrating within global supply chains. You know, then really the sky's the limit. One of the other refrains that we often hear, Sean, is that of beneficiation. And you mentioned our high volumes of commodities exports. And yeah, unfortunately, one of the, the side effects of this uh, war in Ukraine is that commodity prices uh, have gone up uh, because of uh, constraints on supply, which is benefiting South Africa. And we saw in the recent budget speech that our revenues have ticked up. The, the fiscal deficit has narrowed somewhat, still uh, quite high. Um, but what is this problem with this idea of beneficiation? Because it sounds very nice. Oh, you know, we shouldn't just be pulling raw materials out of the ground. We should be uh, making our own products. Uh, what are some of the shortcomings of this approach? So beneficiation is a term we hear a lot, and it just doesn't stand up to scrutiny. I mean, it's not just me saying that. I, I, I can certainly reference you know, top economic professors from top universities. Who, who don't take the term seriously at, at all. Uh, not, not that it, uh, it, it's, uh, it, it's meaningful in the sense that sure, you know, if, if you pull something out of the ground and you can do something with it, you 
should if you can do that competitively. But if you run the numbers, I mean, and, and I ran some numbers around beneficiation, I think the year was like 98 or 99. And if you look at the cost of how much uh, to ship uh, sort of the basic materials to build a car from South Africa to China versus the cost of shipping the car from China to South Africa, you know, it's like a hundred times more expensive to ship the car. You really want to build the cars, you know, where the customers are. And, and the fact, it, it's very inexpensive, really, e even with today's high energy prices, it's very inexpensive to, to ship raw materials. Uh, finished goods uh, are much more expensive. So beneficiation, it doesn't stand up to scrutiny in the least. The opposite, uh, sort of the opposite concept, uh, which you never hear of in, in South Africa's lexicon, uh, talking about economics, is diffusion. And th that's what happens in, in global supply chains. Once you're, once you're tapped into a global su supply chain, if you're a young worker, even, even at a pretty base level, you know, you're just uh, more exposed to how the, the global economy is moving and, and what the needs are and, and what skills you want to develop. Um, and that's a completely different uh, mindset. And it's also, it's not just from a knowledge perspective diffusion, but the, the, the even more powerful effect is you're taking uh, labor uh, from a, a low cost country and then you're selling goods and, and or services, you're adding value to goods or services to highly affluent customers. And then that has a, a massive uh, uh, sort of multiplier uh, leveraging effect because if they're more affluent customers, you can have higher margins. So when you look to see what happens within spreadsheets, it's pretty magical uh, versus versus you know the the concept that you're going to sell commodities, uh, you know let's say agricultural commodities to uh, you know low income countries. Uh, it's you know the 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 rate at which uh, an economy can advance uh, with that approach is very, very slow versus if uh, young people particularly are adding uh, value to goods and services in global supply chains, you know, you, you get those Taiwan effects where you can, you can really uh, sustain very high rates of growth. And a lot of it is because the, the workers are developing really valuable skills. Your argument is that maybe some of these industrial policy interventions by the state to try and direct economic activity are, are misplaced. But I think there's also a separate conversation that we need to have around the regulation of the labor market itself. And I think that that's quite important. We have a very uh, highly restricted labor regulatory framework, uh, the National Minimum Wage Act, the Basic Conditions of Employment Act, the Labor Relations Act. All of these serve to uh, tighten up the labor market. They benefit existing workers at the expense of the unemployed. Uh, so what can be done to try and unlock the labor market and liberalize it some more? So the, the labor regulations absolutely have to change. I mean, it, it's just uh, criminal that uh, people are denied uh, employment opportunities, you know, at, uh, f right, from, f right from the get-go. And, and really we're going down a, a path where what should be our, our most valuable asset, which is young people, they're gonna be sidelined really, you know, for their entire lives. And it's important to keep in mind you know, someone who's 20 has never had a job, and even if they're poorly educated, you know, that, that's sad, we need to get them jobs. But by the time they're in their 30s, it, it really starts to change a lot. You know, you, you can take a poorly educated 20-year-old person, and within a uh, supportive work environment, they can develop a lot, okay? Really, really a great deal. Sky's the limit. Uh, or, or, you know, the, the person's individual limitations are the limit, not the policies around them. So the 
from where we are now, where we're making no progress, I, I would say to focus on the path of least resistance. And, and I would strongly argue that there should really be special dispensations, however you want to say it, really uh, protection from all of the anti-competitive, anti-growth uh, labor and BEE and, and, and even uh, you know, tax uh, regulations uh, for any sort of young people who are val adding value, adding value to goods and services, and and to, to shift into that sort of mindset, it, it doesn't really cost anybody because uh, we're just missing out on these opportunities. You know, companies aren't coming from uh, from Asia to diversify to uh, to produce goods and services or add value to goods and services in South Africa, destined to Europe or North America. Um, th there's none of that going on um, because South Africa just is not a, an attractive uh, export destination for uh, adding value to goods and services. And, and that's what has to change. Uh, otherwise, we have no chance of meaningfully reducing the youth unemployment and, and then after a few years, you just create a massive hole in the economy. And I don't think people begin to appreciate how difficult that is to achieve. And we're very close to that. I mean, just another few years. Uh, and the damage done is, is really just horrific. And, and it'll take a very long time to correct, assuming that you, know, you could even turn policies on, on its head. Yes, and as Ricardo Hausman, the Harvard economist, once wrote that the skills that you use on the job are the skills that you actually learn on the job itself. So. Uh, it's through working that you acquire the skills that, that we need. And I think it's quite popular for people to point to the importance of education. And obviously education is, is really critical, but that's a long-term play. Uh, you know, that's going to take many, many years to fix the problems in education. And also there are many millions of people who've already gone through the education system uh, who are now uh, seeking work and, and need to develop skills that are competitive. So I think this is a really good way of, of, generating new skills in the labor market. Absolutely. And I'm a huge fan of Ricardo Hausman, and he makes a, a lot of brilliant points. But I think I'd put that at, at the top, at least in terms of relevance for South Africa. I mean, I just, I'm repeating myself a little bit, but you, know, you take a, uh, each year, let's say there's, there's a million uh, tw uh, South Africans who become 20 years old. Uh, you know, there's 100,000 of them, I would say, whose education, you know, could have been better but you know, if, if people were you know, entrepreneurial about saying, well, hang on, this person has this skill, this person has that skill, and, and, you know, and people wondering, well, what am I talking about? You know, sort of the, uh, a generation ago, uh, you know, so, suddenly call centers be, became a, a big thing. And, and so I would participate a little bit, but, but not a lot. Um, and, and really that's just an example. Um, and, but then like with 3D printing, you know, the, the capacity to like personalize uh, products and, and services, um, you know, across the globe, you know, as the economy becomes more and more service oriented, becomes uh, much more digital, um, you know, the, the distance factors fall away. But really the, the component you need, and you need to bring two things together to employ these people um, is you need to have some, some policy leeway uh, some carve-outs to, to uh, allow them to, to enter the, the global market. And then you, know, you, you need to have the entrepreneurial verb. Uh, and and that's, that's not happening. You know, we, we, we're, we've got a wall between those two things and it, it, prevents, uh, it prevents people from coming in and investing in South Africa and, and mobilizing capital to, to employ people to, to integrate within global supply chains. 
uh, which would create, uh, it's really the only way to uh, rapidly increase employment. Um, the, I don't see how the, the economy can avoid uh, really uh, dire prospects uh, without those sort of special dispensations. Right, Sean, well, one of the constraints on our ability to export is, first of all, our distance to market. So if you consider, for example, economies like Mexico, Turkey, they have very close proximity to major markets like the United States and Europe, respectively. South Africa, we're all, all the way down here on the bottom tip of Africa. Um, and then another constraint is also our ability to get goods to the ports and out onto the sea. Uh, so how do we overcome those two problems of distance to market and infrastructure decay? I, I do think we need to dis distinguish uh, between uh, performance, uh, you know, po policies versus practices. So there's the policies which just make South Africa, you know, uninvestable for uh, export-oriented activities, value-adding export activities. So, and, and, and then there's like the commodity exporting, where obviously, you know, that, that's, uh, that's the opposite of, of a digital economy. And that's where you really need to, to, to move in, in bulk. And so obviously we, we need to do that better, but people should be aware that's not gonna create a lot of jobs. And I mean, this is well worth thinking about. Um, you know, suddenly, let's say suddenly we sorted all those problems out and South Africa's GDP was taking off uh, and kind of like the five years you had uh, from about 2002, 2007, like 5% uh, average uh, annual GDP growth. Well, you know, that, that helped with uh, creating employment, but we never really did the transformation. And that was never really going to lead to uh, employing uh, the vast majority of school leavers. And, and that really is uh, the, the, the primary uh, success determinant, determinant because, you know, we have to transform from a, a resource-based economy. And, and really get our heads around this. All we need to see is what's happened to Russia now. You know, whether... Uh, the Europeans and, and others uh, stop buying their, their oil and gas, their economy, if you're a 20-year-old uh, Russian with aspirations, you know, uh, maybe on an individual uh, basis, you know, there's, there's still, uh, you, you can still do well. But as a group, you know, we can be really confident unless something dramatically happens in Russia, you know, change of leadership and, and Russia uh, really integrates back into the global economy like it never really has. You know, the, the 20 year olds, uh, for the most part, you know, their life prospects will be vastly dimmer than they need to be. And South Africa's situation is very, very similar. But we, we very much brought it upon ourselves at, at the policy level, just saying, look, we're going to be very inward looking. And again, it goes back to that thing. We're just going to fish in, in this one lake uh, and we're not going to go out to sea. And that was just never, that was never going to work. That was always going to bring us to where we are now. And that, that's what has to change. So another thing that needs to change, Sean, is the way in which we conceptualize policy in the context of political realignment. So it seems subsequent to the 2021 local government elections that there is a sea change happening. This was the first time that the ANC went below 50%. They got 46% on aggregate across the various municipalities. So you know, this is going to play out in some quite dramatic ways in 2024 in the next national and provincial elections. How do you see this policy discussion of uh, discussion evolving over that time period? Because it's we're under 800 days away from that 
that election. And I think there's some serious discussions that need to be have about the policy framework in the country. Yeah, well, thanks for asking that, David, because that's a really important piece. Um, you know, what, what I'm saying is it's completely unrealistic to think, okay, there's going to be a coalition uh, government. I've been writing about this for a long time. I, I, I hope hopefully there'll be uh, a coalition government uh, in 2024 at the national level that, that has vastly different ideas. But, you know, to, to think that, you know, the, the, the people and the parties are going to cohere uh, about some uh, high growth uh, model to, to take uh, South Africa in a, a much more positive direction, uh, you know, within the, the weeks and months after the election, that, that's profoundly unlikely. It, it's, uh, it's just, it's, it's not plausible uh, unless, unless, you know, we really change the national dialogue now to, to get much more realistic. And, and then if I can just, uh, you know, kind of uh, frame it this way, so what holds South Africa back is it's, it's very difficult to at the same time see how you can uh, combine sort of social justice objectives, economic development uh, objectives, uh, commercial uh, economic development, uh, sorry, commercial uh, economics, and, and, and uh, have all of that in mind, how they align, and then how the world keeps changing. But that's what needs to happen. And, and the good news is if people do do the work properly and, and without uh, you know, political, uh, politically shaped uh, limitations, all these things do align. Uh, th that's the very good news. You know, we're, we're impeding ourselves. I mean, an example I use, it's like the, the people in parliament, you know, they should be looking uh, towards the harbor. Instead, they, they look at, at, at the, the mountain and they, you know, all they see is impediments. So uh, we're, you know, we must, we must look at, at what uh, and how there are global opportunities. All right, and Sean, I mean, it seems also that there needs to be a big political fight over these two issues that we've discussed, industrial policy, and labor market regulation. So if there is this coalition that's beginning to coalesce, how would they go about engaging in this, in this fight? Because there's some pretty deeply embedded interests around both of these, uh, both of these considerations. So uh, how do you start to make those political trade-offs and, and make that argument more forcefully? The events that, that have been unfolding over the last three or four weeks. So, you know, the, the, there's been a, a lot of economic lessons. Um, I mean, the, the reality is, uh, so the, the West uh, or basically the country has been wealthy for a long time. So they have a lot of purchasing power. That, that's what's so different than South Africa. That's why we have so much unemployment because we don't have enough purchasing power. Uh, and not only that, their economies are very focused uh, for the most part on creating wealth. Okay, South Africa is not close. You know, we don't even focus on, on productivity. So there's some really strong lessons there. And so basically what people want to do when they look at things like social justice, economic development, uh, you know, and, and, and big companies and things like that, you know, they, they sort of want to do, they want to wag their finger and, and, and use value judgments. And because, you know, it, it takes quite a bit of work to, to get your head comfortably around uh, how these topics align. Uh, but, but stop Stop making those value judgments, you know, and, and, and be open-minded to where, hang on, these are these are what the successful countries have done. You know, we're we're very isolated here. You know, we're a long way from a, a top three or four, uh, top 
three or four uh, economies in the world or, or the, the real clusters of high growth. Um, so we're not influenced by having neighbors who have uh, who also have, have had um, you know a lot of historical grievances and, and they have you know ethnic strife and things like that. But they realize that hang on the, the way forward is you integrate within the global economy and everyone's better off. So we're lacking that. But you know if, if we did look at the news and 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 kind of figure out the lessons that are being taught, um, it's pretty obvious that you know if Russia has new leadership. They can be very much accepted into the West, and they can suddenly, you know, their, their growth uh, trajectory is much steeper. I mean, it's really radical. And the same for South Africa. Right, Sean. Well, I mean, one of the pet peeves that I have about the labor market in South Africa is the extension of collective bargaining agreements to non parties. And I think this is very emblematic of the uh, kind of corporatist compact that exists in South Africa at the moment, because what essentially happens is uh, a major employer and a major trade union, for example, in the metal sector, they'll get together and negotiate an agreed wage for the entire sector. So even organizations that are not party to those negotiations have to then apply those wages. Uh, it seems also there's this increase in inflation, a lot of pressures on people's pockets. Um, so there, it seems to me, is going to be a big political fight emerging that if we need to break the stranglehold that unions and big embedded businesses have on the labor market, we're going to need to uh, challenge that, uh, that problem. Um, so how do we go about doing that? Right. Well, there's a long list of, of issues like that. And, it, and my answer is it, it doesn't work. I mean, look, you can't uh, not respond. You know, you, you have to make the, 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 the case. You know, I, I've, I've been doing that. You know, the South Africa's fortune has some wonderful think tanks, you know, and, and, and that hasn't had a whole lot of effect. So what I'm saying is that we need to go and, and show where there is a way forward. And, and that's why, you know, I'm, I make the case for, uh, you know, carve outs from these uh, anti-growth regulations. Uh, and then when people see, see what is possible. And, and, you know, and then, so that's your pet peeve, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the bit about uh, uh, projecting uh, onto non-participants uh, the results of collecting bargaining by other parties. And I agree with you a thousand percent, but my pet peeve, which I think goes even deeper, is so now we're at a point where there's massive prolonged youth unemployment and, and at the same time, we're debating, you know, subsistence uh, payments to, you know, the, the vast majority of, of, of young people are, are healthy and employable and can't get jobs. And, you know, and this is not really my point is, you know, the, the, the ANC is very good about how they, they frame issues and we go along with their framing, I, I think, uh, way too much. You know, they're framing that as, as a moral issue of subsistence payments versus fiscal responsibility as if they're taking the high road and they're not looking at really across the board sweeping policy shifts, which is what we have to get. To. If we don't get there, uh, it doesn't work. And so I'm, my response, uh, Percy, although I agree with you, uh, you know, on that issue, is that taking these issues on bit by bit is important, but it's not gonna get you there. You have to show that there's something that will work. There is a better way. And then when, when uh, coalitions come together, hopefully in, 
2024 uh, that they see, hang on, we have a track record of this working. And by the way, even the ANC, you know, the ANC likes pilot projects. You know, they like uh, SEZs, but they think in geographic terms. Uh, so you know, it's also, it's helpful to, to work uh, with others uh, using uh, solutions that they're at least somewhat comfortable with. And then you, uh, you mold it into something that, that moves in, in the direction that we, that we have to move into. Yeah, and I think the mistake that many people make, and this is something I've, I've observed throughout my several years working at the Center for Risk Analysis, is that they assume that policy is kind of a, like a technocratic exercise that it's just around optimizing the right uh, set of laws and regulations. But they perhaps don't always appreciate the role that ideology plays in informing the policy in the first place. And policy is downstream from the ideological convictions and predispositions of the government of the day. Do you think that ideology is an underrated uh, characteristic of, of some of these policy discussions? Right. Well, you started to smile there a little bit. And I, I smile a bit as well. I mean, uh, I, I'm torn. Um, I, I, I think it's, you know, I mean, to, to be a bit crude, it's like the, the, the communist uh, versus the, the thugs. You know who who are very aggressively just uh, seek to, to get rich uh, with uh, you know no remorse for for the effects. Uh, but you know the evidence is there. The ideology is, is a, a big. It, it runs very very deep. Um, and but I, I still come out that you know you're, you're not going to win the, the ideological arguments if you still haven't won them, um, despite all the evidence to the contrary. So without showing what is possible, and, and, and things are so bad now in, in terms of the trajectory that we're on. And you know, so I, I would rather focus on on young people and, and their aspirations. And you know, it, 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 so I should throw one other thing into this. You know, sometimes people think that well, hang on. The, the, the people who are well off, they can just give more to the people who have almost nothing, you know, subsistence. Uh, that it completely ignores the dignity thing. You know, people who want to, to be self-sufficient for themselves, you know, their, their partners, their, their children, you know, they, they that, if, if a government today it isn't allowing them to do that. That's a remarkable failure. You know, poverty has plummeted in the last 30 years. Yeah, it, it's really only governments that uh, rely on extraction-based uh, uh, commodity exporting where you, you get thug types who are indifferent to, to the masses. And then they, 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 then they grab hold of ideology uh, because it's hell of a convenient and it seems to... To, to give them a, a shield, uh, but, but uh, uh, I'm not buying the, the ideology, but I, I don't know, you know what, what people really think. And I'm sure there's some people who, who really are full on uh, Marxists, uh, but, but I, I, that's only uh, a portion of it as, as I see it. And I think the point that you made earlier, Sean, about the moral argument, I think that that's just as important as the technical argument. So you can point to, uh, economic models, and you can look at other countries that have successfully emerged out of poverty, and you can compare po uh, policies. But you also need to be able to make the moral case, to, as you have done, to say, it is unconscionable that we have millions of people who are unemployed, who are at the margins of our society. We need to bring them in. Uh, also, winning that debate around the profit motive, I think that that's really important. That's seen as something kind of dirty. Uh, I see all on, on my LinkedIn feed, many companies proudly proclaiming their corporate social investments. 
supporting charities and so on, all, all of which are noble causes. But very seldom do I see uh, companies championing the the profits that they've made, the value that they've created uh, in terms of good products and services, the jobs that they've created. I think that that is uh, equally, if not more, important. So I think we need to kind of win that that moral argument as well. Right. So so I'd very much like to underline that. Um, so you know, people feel good. You know, we're coming together, national unity. This, this you know, that that's feel good stuff, which which is important. Well, well. So a lot of people do that every day because they work in big companies. You know, uh, the reality is there's a lot of things which big companies are just much better at. Um, and, you know, big companies tend to pay better, you know. Uh, so we romanticize entrepreneurs. I mean, I love entrepreneurs. Um, but, you know, we, we should be cognizant of the fact that, you know, we live in a world with nearly 8 billion people. Most all of them are living pretty well. Uh, you know, less than 10% are, are, are seriously poor. Um, and, you know, it would be pretty darn difficult to do that without a whole lot of people coming together within large corporations. Uh, so, you know, the, the idea that, uh, you know, we're so isolated from the rest of the world that, you know, we can uh, create our, our own version of morality and, you know, we wave our fingers at, at people we don't like and we want to criticize uh, big companies just for the sake of, of their being big. Well, they're, you know, they get a whole lot done that, that we need to get done. All right, Sean. Well, a recurring theme in this podcast is that of decentralization. And I think that's very important for breaking the monopolies that often the states or entrenched business interests have uh, on an economy. Uh, how would you apply this theme of decentralization to South Africa's economy? How can we devolve power down and out and to better unlock the value that exists at the local level in South Africa? Well, um, I, I mean, I think the, the core hard reality is that there is no South African economy because it's just not sustainable if we think of it, uh, you know, the, the economic term is autarky. And, and that's been used a whole lot lately, you know, in, in mainstream media, you know, talking about, because that's where Russia's going. But we've chosen to go. It just means that, you know, you're independent. And, and, and you know, by the way, South Africa, uh, South Africa, the Russians have the, the most resources in the world. And then, you know, the U.S. and South Africa, you know, they're, they're the top three. Um, and, and, and depending on how you measure it, but, but generally that's true. So you would think those would be the, the three countries that could operate independently of the rest of the world, which is what autarky speaks to. Uh, the reality is that it's just not an option. And, you know, and, and there are very clear reasons why. And it's a bit of a free lunch thing. And, and sorry because it's a bit wide, but you know, there are a few free lunches. You know, specialization in labor adds so much productivity. Uh, it's like a free lunch. And the same thing with, uh, you know, the theory of competitive advantage, different nations and, and, and globalization. And, and so it, to, to, to think of South Africa as being an independent economy is, is basically fatal. It, it's, uh, you know, we will, we will go, uh, I don't know how low we'll go, but it'll be very low. Uh, and then we'll have to start over again and, and seeing South Africa as, as part of the global economy. And then the way to get part of the, to be part of the global economy, you really have to look at you young people. And again, there's not enough young people in the world is the way the, the world is today. I mean, you know, China's, uh, for instance, their labor force is contracting, but that, and, and there's a whole lot of them are, you know, certainly not China, but you know, it's pretty extreme that, that they have that situation there. So we're really just restricting ourselves if, if we think of uh, South Africa as a, an independent economy. That, that goes back to my, my like thing. All right, and Sean, these are very important proposals, but many people watching this might not necessarily have the power to, to act on these. 
But how would you suggest that people go about incorporating some of your recommendations today into the way in which they do business or the way in which they, they operate in South Africa? Uh, we, we can all have a voice in reshaping the, the national dialogue. I mean, I learned so much from reading comments, you know, that, that people write about uh, news articles. I mean, I, I, uh, I, I just treasure that. Uh, so, so there's the, the national dialogue. And, and then there's also, you know, so big companies can, can look to, to young, it doesn't have to be young, but entrepreneurial companies in terms of working with them to, to break into global uh, markets. Um, you know, th th that's a, incredibly important. And I think, you know, just generally, uh, I mean, I say it doesn't always go over so well, uh, but I say this to young entrepreneurs who, you know, I, I respect, I think, look, these are really are, are the future of South Africa. A lot of these people, you know, they're very focused uh, on the, the local market, you know, the, the uh, Inland Lake. And, and that really needs to change. I mean, and, 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 you know, if you're someone who supports entrepreneurs, um, you know, whether you're a mentor or a, uh, an investor, uh, really, really, really push them to, to find international niches. And, and, and many of them will. Um, and, and, and if they don't, um, I would be much less supportive because it, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not helpful. It'd be much better to, to shift whatever support we can uh, bring to bear on those entrepreneurs who are outward focused. Sean Hagedorn, thank you very much for sharing your solutions with us. Thank you, David. If you enjoyed this content and you're watching on YouTube, please do give this video a like and subscribe to the channel. Also leave your thoughts in the comments section below. And if you're listening on your preferred podcast platform, please do subscribe there as well. Do also share this episode with friends or family who might find it interesting. My name is David Ansara. This is The Solutions Podcast. Until next time, take care.